Today's episode is presented by Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Yes, it's that time of year when we find ourselves looking upwards. We can get out of the office rut for some Thanksgiving fresh air or enjoy holiday lights illuminating landmarks in cities from New York to London and even Brussels gets a cheery do-over. My guest on Power Play this week has spent his career thinking about how to make the features around us more interesting. He's one of the world's most renowned and eclectic designers. Over the last decade, Thomas Heatherwick's creations have become icons in London. They include the eye-catching cauldron at the 2012 Olympic Games and the reimagined red bus. He's also the figure behind the extraordinary and controversial vessel structure in Manhattan's Hudson Yards and some of the technology cathedrals built in Silicon Valley. He's now also opened a new studio in Shanghai. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's transatlantic podcast, where I talk to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic. Thomas Heatherwick is on a mission to change the way our cities and urban areas are built. He's got a new book out called Humanize, imploring the planning powers that be to ditch boring buildings and arguing that they damage both our health and the environment. Later, I'll be joined by my constructive power panel of top experts who have a thing or two to say about his argument. His buildings that I've seen are certainly not, they're not boring. I mean, nobody could say they're boring, but they're divisive, which I love, actually. He's absolutely right that uh, some of our most iconic uh, architecture was extremely divisive when it was created. That said, I think that there is always a danger here of uh, ending up, you know, tied to an architectural design cult. But first, let's hear my conversation with Thomas Heatherwick. Welcome to Powerplay. Well, thank you. And it's exciting to have you in my studio here in King's Cross in London. I have to say, in my job, if I get invited to a rather lovely, exciting building, (laughs) instead of uh, sitting in my own closeted studio, I'm a very happy woman. It's great to be here. So you have made something of a clarion call to transform our built environment, both sides of the Atlantic and around the world, from Silicon Valley to Europe and beyond. And your case, in a nutshell, is that identical urban environments are damaging for our health. They're not good for us mentally or indeed physically. They are boring and soulless. Gosh, but the world is full of them. So... They're some sort of a success, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, far too much success. We, it's true. We've been engulfed in soulless, boring buildings. We all know it. And this is also not a niceness problem, as you just said. It's actually much more serious than that. And it's, it's interesting as things wash through society. 10, 15 years ago, it, nobody was talking about mental health. And then gradually, we even had 
Royal starting to talk about mental health. And we've been talking about EQ and uh, empathy, and then, but there's been no joining of the dots that the buildings around us affect how we feel and our mental health. And in fact, we have three quarters of the population say that buildings affect their mental health, but they're never actually designed for the impact they have on society all around. And to be clear, I'm talking about the outsides of buildings. The insides are pretty good. It's the outsides, which are the backdrop to all our lives, our commons, that have not been designed for bringing society together. But the, these buildings, are, it's not just that they're soulless or boring. Our bodies even go into stress when we're around them. And you're launching a campaign, you're calling it a 10-year global campaign to confront the public health issues caused by boring buildings and inspire the public to demand better. How easy do you think it's going to be to persuade, whether it's mayors and political leaders who have the say in cities and in public buildings, whether it's from the public purse, or indeed increasingly those who spend private money, some of whom you've worked for yourself, who want to kind of make a splash, but they've also got competing demands, they've got competing interests, they have cost-benefit to consider. What makes you think that you could actually change the conversation as opposed to just make a few more lovely buildings? Yeah, yeah, very, very good point. Just to be clear, we're not talking... Uh, someone made the analogy of a fruit loaf. And so in a fruit loaf, you have the raisins which are the sort of special things, and then you have the bread around it. So we're not talking about the Empire State Building. We're not talking about the Shard in London or the Gherkin or the Louvre in Paris Pyramid. We're talking about everyday buildings all around us. The reason that we are using the word boring uh, rather than beauty or ugly is it, we found that beauty is something that society considers very subjective, whereas Boring is much more objective. We've independently done polling of 2,000 people across the UK, and 94% of them all agree on what boring is. And so, I was going to say, that's a very good point. I wasn't sure that we did all agree. As to some people, it was astonishing. 94%, 94% were agreeing agreed. that the buildings that the neuroscientists analysed as boring, they found boring too. So they're flat, they have very often reflective... Flat, I'll let you take it away. Yeah, the, well, there's flat, shiny, plain, serious, monotonous, anonymous. We all know it, but people feel powerless. And... The business case, and in a way, is, is very straightforward. At the moment, the average commercial building in the UK lives till 40 years and then gets demolished. And the carbon involved in buildings is so many more times, say, the aviation industry. So society talks about the impact of aviation on the greenhouse gases in the world, but construction is five times that. And no one's having that conversation. So it's a bit like we talk about fast fashion not being good. We've had basically fast architecture that has, if we got into some demented mindset that says that this lessness is better and more, you're more intellectually superior if you do that. But it's with the toxic combination, of course, it's a little bit cheaper. So... We have got an understanding in construction about the idea of a green premium. 
and I, I'm sure your listeners are smart and know this, but if the, the boards of so many big companies in the world, they know they cannot look their investors in the eye and move into a new headquarters unless it is a good ethical building and in terms of its performance and to be trying to get net zero. That's the, those are the same buildings that are, are due for being demolished in 40 years because what we forgot, there's emotion is a function. And so the idea that form follows function, I totally agree, but we forgot that without emotion, you're actually making redundant buildings. And in the US, the, the US demolishes a billion square foot of buildings every year. That's half of Washington DC demolished and more boring buildings built. The claim that this would offset carbon emissions, now it may be true that a lot of buildings, and I think you say 11% of annual global carbon emissions come from construction and building material, and that is clearly a lot. But what is the evidence that building in the more imaginative way that you describe would help with that? It's harder to scale because it is more distinctive, and therefore you assume needs more individual effort. Obviously, you can use greener materials, but some of your costs will then rise. So to what extent do you think you can kind of solve both problems at once? I'm always wary of solutions to say, get rid of boring buildings. That sounds like a very good idea. But at the same time, it's also going to be if not a magic bullet, then something of a bullet on mm -hmm. climate well, the, change. The, the, Am I being unduly sceptical? Well, the somewhere? construction industry has been in an echo chamber talking to itself. And I had the great privilege to, to speak to Dame Sally Davis. She was the chief medical officer of the United Kingdom. I was bringing up how terrible the, the hospitals are and health environments in the UK. And she just made this brilliant, brilliant point, which was that the only way uh, that those medical environments will change is there's actually no one in charge of them all. There's all these separate health trusts. The only way that things will change is with patient pull. And I remember thinking, what a patient pull? What does that mean? And what she meant was, and it's very profound and in a way really influenced the, the book, which is that leaders don't actually lead. Good leaders listen to what society is talking about and respond. And so, in effect... It's only when there are examples of something that is more human and then there's another cancer care centre being built somewhere else and people say, well, if that cancer care centre is being built, what, surely we can make this better because society has the confidence to speak up. And we've had awards given to buildings. I mean, almost every new building is award-winning, but who's it winning the awards from? It's not winning them from the public. So the, from the money side, it surely makes economic sense if the if society and it's going to sound really soppy and sentimental if society cares or loves uh buildings at all we don't have to all agree but just cares enough to say don't demolish it then we adjust and repair and extend but we don't destroy with the massive carbon impact that goes with that but when you say how do we do it we don't need genius building designers doing every single building in the world. But there are rules that you can start to follow. And, you know, the most basic flatness, the flatter buildings are, in general, the more boring they are. That could be curved or square or historic. Uh, we've even developed a boringometer in the studio, which I thought you might find interesting. You know those pin beds that you push your face into? Your children might have had one or you push your hand into. And there's lots of little pins 
In effect, if you do a gigantic digital version of that and push it into a building, the first two floors are where most of us are on the ground floor. I mean, this really is a campaign about the outsides of buildings and we're not in helicopters flying around. We're at the street and your emotion is on the ground floor, the first floor, that's kind of where it is. And that's where three-dimensionality and in the world of building design, there used to be a, a sense of a co-created with the input of many sculptors, artists, craftspeople. There were many people involved. We've sort of evolved to this sort of image of the lone genius who's actually so burdened down by all the regulations that, that you're lucky to get any building at all. We've told ourselves a story how expensive buildings are when actually a researcher looked back in history and found Buildings were really expensive in the past. It's just society thought it mattered to spend a, a bit more. I think a fellow designer and, and, and critic said at one point that you may have a survival bias, that you've forgotten all the really bad buildings that, that disappeared, that didn't stand the test of time. And also, of course, that a lot of building in the past is not something that you would want to repeat now if you look at slum dwellings and poorly designed hospitals you know, where infections carried. Are you remembering the past a bit through rose-tinted Well, I think spectacles? this is... Uh, baby getting swept away with the bathwater bath because actually, and one of the people we interviewed um, said this really well, was that look at what was described as slums in London. Actually, what a slum is in an experience we had in London was a, a house that should have one family having six. The same house, when it's one family, is suddenly a luxury villa. So slum is often not about the architecture, and we blame the architecture. I mean, having sanitation and having some space is, ne is necessary for anyone's sanity. And I think it's easy to blame buildings when often it's just simply overcrowding. This is a transatlantic show. We have uh, listeners on either side of the Atlantic and beyond. And we'll come on to talk perhaps about your, your work, uh, both in America here and in, in Asia in, in just a minute. But do you notice this being a kind of different kind of argument or the things that people like or don't like as you work in so many countries and cities? Do we really all agree with what boring is? I think the thing that's exciting for me is that it feels like there is a consensus emerging and, I mean, just to be clear, it was called the international style that was pushed by a, a small group of people very effectively that caught on around the world and, and arguably created a, a global catastrophe some on, in social terms. We do need to talk about controversial buildings and controversial structures. So let's look at the, the vessel, the viewpoint, the honeycomb structure of, I think it's over 150 uh, staircases, 80 platforms, a centrepiece, very dramatic in Hudson's Yards in Manhattan. Now, that has many, many admirers. A lot of people think that is actually really... You know, become one of the reasons you would go to Hudson's Yards, and that's a, in itself a quite controversial development, it's also raised the a difficult issue because there have been several suicides. It's a very high building. It's very sort of open structure, I should say. So I think there you can see that there is a justified political and public argument about design, building safety, who gets to decide. Uh, the vessel was safe, um, it was very unfortunate that it opened just before COVID, where there was enormous despair. Many young people in a very difficult 
position. So we are, we're very sad about what happened and we're, just, we're working with the developers now to put new safety measures in. So the, the project has been very, very loved and it's important to remember that. And, but within this, this, these few terrible things that happened and that's why it's closed while we solve that. So you would... They were not accidents, just to be clear. These yes, are people yes, who chose to throw it, themselves is, off. That is very true and that could happen... It was built above in, the safety standards in, in, that are normal on high, higher building structures there in New York. I can't resist teasing you about the ones that got away. And of course, the most famous uh, high-profile project was the, the Garden Bridge over the River Thames in London. It was cancelled in 2017. And the mayor of London is still there, Sadiq Khan, withdrew his support after a financial inquiry. And uh, you know, to my mind, I think somewhat unfairly <laughs> in this case, kind of blamed the previous government for sort of letting it run over costs. So you found yourself in a bit of a political pincer. Uh, do you still think, you know, one day I'm going to get back to that garden bridge? It was an extraordinary ambition. But, it, was, it's, <laughs> it was, as I at least remember the design, the, the appeal was that it, it sounded like exactly what it sounded like. Yes. It was a garden and a bridge. And it would have, I think, been a, a great addition to the city in terms of a different way of looking at it. Well, it's, a, it's astonishing. It was, an incredible, it was an incredible idea that someone had that we were very lucky to work on. It got within a whisker of happening, and actually all the money was raised at the end. And it was a transatlantic collaboration. The, the people who were philanthropically trying to give a nation a public space based around nature included incredible philanthropists from the U.S., and even more than in the UK. So it was an upside-down politics thing. You opened a studio in Shanghai last year. I think it's the company's first permanent overseas base. Several of your high-profile projects are also in Asia. How do you balance that expansion and that desire to make impact in Asia with the sort of worries about doing business sometimes in non-democratic countries, especially when human rights, labour rights in the construction business are often suppressed or not in the conversation as much as they should be? Uh, in our, our work, we prioritise public-facing projects. So we don't do anyone's private house uh, in their private little wilderness. Um, and we, we tend not to do projects that are tucked away from society. Our passion is public. That's why this studio is on the high street and our studio in Shanghai is also public. And so anyone from the public can walk in the door. We're, we're sandwiched between a beauty parlour and a um, karaoke bar. We're trying to make projects that can last hundreds of years, that are public-facing. And to, to me, that's the real... You have the kind of customer client who pays for your work, but there's the, also the other client who is all of us. And that's what excites and motivates us most of all. I have to take you back to the fact that you are working, as well as working in democracies, mm. you're working with autocracies. Now, if you build or design in the Middle East, if you or China and some other Asia countries too, you will find yourself working in autocracies. Does that cause you any moral qualms? We have thought about it a lot, uh, and I think China is an extremely complex situation. I mean, they, they are also simultaneously, in some senses, the greenest country that you can work with. They're the biggest producers of um, solar panels, and they are 
being very progressive in many, many ways. So it's a very complex thing. We've got a group in the studio who sit when we're looking at any new project and analyze it from every possible angle. And we have one project in Saudi at the moment. And that project is taking the desalination plant in Jeddah and making studio spaces for 400 Saudi artists who currently have nowhere to work. They're on their kitchen tables. And knowing that our passion is how we sort of unlock society for each other, that felt worth entering there to not let that giant desalination plant that's as big as the whole of King's Cross get knocked down and breathe new life into it and give workspaces and give exposure to people who are currently have nowhere for the, to work. So that so the social equation in each project leads us. But just to be really clear, we we want to be working in the UK if we if we possibly can, but it's because there's this sort of snobbery fixed ideas that we're finding that often it's the narrowest and the narrowest minds are within the country you're within. And that's such a shame. And we would be doing less work in other parts of the world if we could help our own nation more. Because I'd like to ask our audience this. Give us a couple of buildings, preferably if you could range transatlantic or beyond, that inspire you when you walk past or you actually, like an old friend, go to, to see if you're in a a city or a, or a place where would you take us on you're a, we're on a magic carpet global thomas heatherwick tour at a very reasonable rate i'm going to be generous and say it could be somebody else's building but it could also be one of your own if you fancy <laughs> you haven't talked much about those on this in this well, okay. conversation in mountain view in california in silicon valley we've designed the main headquarters buildings for google and with in collaboration with a firm called big uh, from copenhagen And we have deliberately made the buildings come down to the human scale at the street. And they are, each individual building can have three, four thousand people working inside it. And we've humanized the buildings by making the entire roof made from solar panels. You know how often solar panels are stuck on like post-it notes onto buildings? Instead, like dragon scales or fish scales, the entire roof is made from these overlapping solar panels that aren't the normal black solar panels. And they create curves and they have slots in which are like smiles. So it's a built they're buildings that give joy and they trigger the landscape around and they're inviting and they have overhangs, and they are pretty unflat, as you can possibly get. And it shocked me when I first went to Silicon Valley, a place that had changed the whole world in so many ways, this tiny area, how rubbish it was. The public experience was terrible. You went to a rich person's house, whoa, wonderful. The bit we share, abominably bad. And that's, that's such an opportunity And so many buildings are takers, not givers. So that's our focus on all the projects is how do we make something give back to all of us? And surely every building designer, you want to do something. They go into this profession because they do care. But we've had a mindset problem. We've had an industry problem. And we all know it. And it's just such an opportunity. We ask everyone who is kind enough to come on this show who we should book as a future guest because we like getting other people to do our, our work for us but this way I think we also get a lot of inspirations and different ideas 
So if I'm not taking you too much by surprise, Thomas Heatherwick, who would you listen to? What would make you click on your power play uh, button on your podcast app if we could get them on the show? Oh, let me have a think. Well, my agenda really is to try and make the world around all of us more human. And the key to that is idiosyncrasy and the confidence to bring creativity around us. And for that reason, I'd love to suggest the British artist called Grayson Perry. Thomas Heatherwick, thanks very much for joining me on Powerplay. Well, Anne, it's been such a pleasure having you here in the studio because typically it's never policy or politics that gets discussed in a design studio and it feels there's so much that the world of culture and design can offer. Coming up on Powerplay, our Power Panel will be here to explore what you've just heard. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. The company's vaccine technology is built on a protein-based platform and combines the power of a well-understood approach with an innovative nanoparticle technology. It is intended to help protect against some of the world's most pressing viral diseases, including COVID-19 and influenza. Novavax is collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Because protecting one of us can help protect all of us. Learn more at www.novavax.com. We're back now with our power panel to take stock of my conversation with Thomas Heatherwick. And to do that, we have Aitor Hernandez-Morales, author of the Living Cities Global Policy Lab at Politico. Hi there, Aitor. Hey there. And Jeff Colton, who co-authors Politico's New York playbook, covering the vibrant politics of New York, which can get a little rough at times. Hi there, Jeff. That's exactly right. Hello. Let's hear about how that pans out when we discuss the built environment. Aitor, what did you make of my guest Thomas Heatherwick's central argument that many cities, many urban spaces are blighted by boring buildings? They dull the senses, but they're also harmful to our health. I think that there is broad agreement that boring cities, boring urban landscapes are not good for people. Uh, certainly, you know, none of us want to live in one of those uh, Soviet dystopias where we just see these these horrible, brutalist housing blocks. And there have been plenty of studies that show that even uh, making the mildest of efforts, so for example, painting building facades in bright colors can lift the spirits and be a positive thing for city dwellers. That said, I think it, it really is important to take in mind the challenges that cities are facing right now, especially when, when we're talking about the uh, climate crisis, and take that into account when we have these proposals to invest in projects that many would you know, easily dismiss as vanity projects for, for some architects and some designers. So to take the example that, that you guys discussed about the Garden Bridge, 
in London, I mean, that project was hugely problematic. We're talking about something where the 43 million pounds in public money were spent on this scheme. And uh, when you really think about the sort of problems that we've seen, especially in public housing in Britain, so for example, the Glenfell uh, disaster, that's certainly one where you have to wonder, was this money that ultimately was not was not even used for a project that we can enjoy. Was this money well spent or do we need to start directing that cash towards projects that will benefit all people and not just, you know, certain certain elites? So Jeff, listening to the the interview, Thomas Heatherwick is always, I think, an interesting voice. He calls himself a designer, not an architect, but clearly he does like it when things he's designed get built and come to life in cities, in Asia, in the UK, in America. Was there anything in it that you thought, oh, yes, I've sometimes had that same thought or come across in my work that reminded you of anything? I was taken by his, his boring versus beautiful buildings. And, you know, his buildings that I've seen are certainly not, they're not boring. I mean, nobody could say they're boring, but they're divisive, which I love, actually. I, I think it's great in, like, the, one of the best thing about being a New Yorker is that you can, you can fight about stuff and, and you can debate. And the vessel, this large uh, architectural centerpiece of Hudson Yards, this new development in Manhattan, it was incredibly divisive. Some people you know, thought it, it looked like a shawarma, you know, this big piece of meat. But at the same time, it has people lining up to take photos of it. I mean, it is it has already become somewhat of this very popular icon, particularly for visitors. I think New Yorkers are kind of like, uh, you know, whatever. But it's the visitors, it's the tourists that it's really become a sign of New York. And it's a necessary picture to take on your visit to New York. So yes, uh, the boring versus beautiful, I mean, really got me thinking. And I, I think, uh, frankly, I agree. It's better to be maybe divisive and interesting than boring. Ito, what do you make of that? Better to be divisive and interesting than boring. Boring seems to be a word that Thomas Heatherwick really he uses it a lot. He doesn't like what he considers boring buildings. He blames Corbusier, which then starts another whole argument about who's responsible for buildings if they are indeed boring. Where do you come out on boring versus beautiful? Listen, we all hate Le Corbusier. He was terrible and really just destroyed our cities. So I think there's consensus here. I think, you know, he was probably one of the worst things to happen to the world in the 20th century. In terms of the boring uh, debate, I mean, look, I, I'm a fan of his buildings, if only because they're interesting to look at. Uh, I would feel a lot more comfortable with them if I knew that they were all privately funded. I think that, you know, there's certainly space for that. I just don't think public funds are necessarily being best used when they are being employed for these kinds of products, which, you know, to Jeff's point, he's absolutely right that uh, some of our most iconic uh, architecture was extremely divisive when it was created. That said, I think that there is always a danger here of uh, ending up, you know, tied to an architectural design cult, as the urbanist James Jacobs used to say. We can't really end up tied to these people. Uh, Jeff, we've mentioned the vessel in Hudson Yards in Manhattan, and it gained some notoriety for tragic suicides involving people jumping from the structure. And I think steps are underway to address that. And Thomas Heatherwick did mention that. It's obviously something I think he doesn't feel very comfortable about. And I suppose the question there is, what's the balance of opinion in New Yorkers about it, given the very high buildings 
do bring that risk with them? Is it fair, if you like, to kind of pin this uh, on this because it's a standout building and it grabs attention? Suicide is a risk from any high buildings. How do you see that argument now playing out? How's it moved on? I, frankly, I feel for the guy. It's not quite fair to blame the architecture for when people are, are dying by suicide. You know, this isn't accidents. Um, and it's a shame, really, that this piece of architecture now has become associated with suicide and and that people are not allowed to climb up in it. I mean, it was meant to be a interactive piece of architecture, an interactive design where you can climb up on stairs or take an elevator up, uh, similar to the Eiffel Tower. However, yeah, it's been closed now for 18 months, I think. I, I myself have never been able to actually get inside it. It's still open to go in on the ground and, and look around. So I, I feel for the guy. I mean, gosh, the Golden Gate Bridge, iconic bridge in San Francisco, also has many suicides, many bridges across the world do. But it's, it's, I don't know if it's quite fair to associate or you know, to, to blame the architecture on that. He was very dismissive of Silicon Valley, moving our heads out of New York or London for a moment. I tour one of the most creative places on the planet, I think he put it something like that, but very condemnatory of the public buildings and spaces. I must say, if it's a, a novice, if you go to Silicon Valley for the first time, as I did a few years ago, you kind of think, where is it? But it's an interesting point, isn't it, that you can have all this creativity, this forward-looking innovation. I might just take your thoughts, Saitor, on that. Is he, is he right about Silicon Valley, or are we missing the fact that a lot has changed there and maybe we're just looking for the wrong kind of buildings? I, I, I think his objection is probably more toward the use of space in that part of the country and certainly across the US, what you'll have are these uh, cities that are spread out over miles and miles and miles. So you, you can have very interesting buildings, but depending on where you're driving, because that's the only way to get around over there, you may never see them. What do you reckon to that, Jeff? Silicon Valley, land of building opportunity or just a, a place where the techs, the geeks and all the surrounding services are just really happy to be in glass and steel. <laughs> One of the, I'd say, most interesting new pieces of architecture in America is the Apple headquarters. I mean, it's sort of a modern pentagon for those familiar with the big U.S. Department of Defense building. It's, it's a circle and there's a circle within it. It is, it is very interesting. However, it's in the middle of like a giant parking lot and you really can't experience the architecture and experience the building unless, I guess, unless you work at Apple. And that's so different than the architecture of great cities of New York, of Paris, of London, I could go on. Shanghai, where you, you really get to experience it just walking around and seeing it. And, and I think that's probably the great tragedy of Silicon Valley architecture is that uh, it's a little more private. It's not available to uh, just the public unless maybe you happen to park in the parking lot. So putting aside whether we end up as foes or fans of Thomas Heatherwick's design, he has brought up this interesting, very simple divide, boring, beautiful. He's got his ideas. Going to pick on you two now, Itor. Buildings or schemes or places or designs that to you are boring and beautiful. Gosh, so I, I hope it doesn't come off as if I'm uh, waving the red flag here. But I would say that uh, a real example of incredibly boring architecture is the Royal Palace in Madrid or even Buckingham Palace. They're just very 
plain neoclassical constructions that, uh, you know, obviously project the image of wealth, but don't really say much else. And in the case of Madrid in particular, it's a building that just doesn't really have a relationship with the city, despite its grandiosity and its marble and its, uh, you know, endless statues and so forth. Whereas I think a building that is beautiful is probably Vienna's Karl Markshof, which is a, a very famous social housing complex that was uh, opened in 1930. And it has these beautiful sleek lines. It's done in this excellent deco style. And yet at the same time, the architect spent a remarkable amount of effort in making sure that it was livable. So you avoid the problem that we often have with architects, especially when they do these social projects where they build buildings that are very interesting on the outside, but horrible to live inside of. And uh, we certainly don't want that. I love that you're channeling your inner Bertolt Brecht there. And it's down with the marble palaces and up with the social housing programs for my tour. And Jeff, what about you? I will have to go with maybe the same building, uh, just the classic New York brownstone, you know, the row houses when you when you look down a street and they're just the same size, the same shape as far as the eye can see. My understanding is back when these were getting built at the turn of the century, a lot of folks were like, ah, so boring. They all just blend into one another. You know, where's the variety? And now... They're considered to be just iconic and beautiful and varied and, and so much craftsmanship went into the, the stonework and, and such. Uh, I, of course, I, I do find them absolutely beautiful, but many people used to, and maybe they wouldn't share this now, but maybe still do find them boring. Uh, and I think that just shows that there uh, is always subjectivity when it comes to this stuff. Thanks there to Aitor and to Jeff, this week's power panellists. And do be sure to join us next week for more interviews and analysis. Of course, I'd love to hear what is your judgment on the boring and the beautiful all around us. If you haven't already, please take a moment now to follow PowerPlay wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms. And if you'd like to get in touch directly with our team wherever you are in the world, do email us at powerplay at politico.eu. The producer in London is Peter Snowden and from Berlin, the executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. Join us next week for another outing on Powerplay. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com.